Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. Hey, everyone. This episode is hosted by Cato board member Toby Darby. Toby sits down with special guest Jack Enter. I've had the pleasure of attending Jack's leadership class at my own agency, and Cato has since asked him to present to our strategic leadership program, as well as presenting at the 2019 Cato Conference in San Diego. Check out Jack's book, Challenging the Law Enforcement Organization. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast. Here with me today is retired Navy commander, former U.S. Army sergeant, former police officer, detective, and law enforcement manager, Dr. Jack Enter. Dr. Enter is an internationally recognized law enforcement instructor who teaches leadership to law enforcement agencies all over the world. He is also the author of the book, Challenging the Law Enforcement Organization, which some of you might recognize as study material required for promotional exams. Dr. Enter has taught at our Cato Conference and to our Strategic Leadership Program, all of which were well-received and highly recommended by our members. Now, mind you, I get that we are the California Association of Tactical Officers, so some might not understand why we are talking about leadership instead of deploying on tactical operations. But I believe at the end of this podcast, whether you're associated with a tactical team, canine unit, patrol, the detective bureau, or even a supervisor or manager, you will walk away with something that will help you in your agency. So if you are preparing for a promotional exam or looking to improve the culture of your organization, take notes and pay attention. Welcome, Jack. Yeah, glad you invited me. Appreciate you including me on this conversation. Absolutely. It's an honor. I mean, I know you're a busy man traveling across the nation right now, teaching to everybody. Um, so we'll get right into this and respectful of time and the time of the membership. Jack, you were a police officer, a detective, a vice narcotics officer, and a manager in law enforcement organizations, not to mention you were a vet in both the Navy and the Army, more so the commission aspect in the Navy. Um, I also understand you are a college professor and take your show on the road in teaching leadership to law enforcement organizations across the nation, mine included, which was well-received here in Glendale, California. Can you briefly explain to the audience how you got here and what continues to motivate you to invade our culture? Well, it's interesting. You said, what, what, how did I get here? I, I, I never planned my career in the way that it would turn out. It just kind of went with the flow. I do think as I look back on it, when I came in law enforcement in 72, I noticed that when I worked on the streets and in investigations, uh, the job was a lot of fun. Um, obviously, we saw sad things, um, terrible things, but it was, you know, law enforcement by its nature is almost uh, an addictive type profession. Everybody loves it. You believe in the mission. Uh, you have probably one of the strongest peer groups of any profession in the country. But I always noticed that when I saw people stressed out, when I saw people frustrated, it was never over operational issues. It was almost exclusively on management issues. And even though I never planned to go this route, I got a chance and got a couple of scholarships to go to graduate school and ended up back in 1984, finishing the doctoral program after I'd spent most of my early years operationally and in first line supervision. And then I was asked to start doing leadership training, which was interesting because I'd only been a first line supervisor. But 
as I began to speak on uh, leadership, it was very clear that the people in the classroom were very frustrated with the drama inside the agency. We expect drama in the operational environment, but uh, we never expected the drama to be really from the men and women that we work with, specifically uh, sergeants, lieutenants, captains, and so forth and so on. Uh, it was interesting. I, I, you know, I wore two hats. One was in law enforcement and one was in the military in law enforcement. And it was very interesting that I didn't see that type of stress in the military. Uh, the military leadership was much better than what I saw in the law enforcement profession. And as I began to train, I began to see in a way that law enforcement management generally does not lead. And that creates a lot of, as I've already mentioned, drama and stress. It was interesting. I, one of the uh, neatest things I was able to do one time, I was requested to interview police officers and deputies and civilian personnel in eight different agencies. And it ended up over a period of time of about a year or so, I interviewed a thousand members of the law enforcement community, uh, not just obviously operational people, but managers. And it was, I asked this question as part of the study. I asked them, I said, has there ever been a day you don't want to come into work? Uh, you came, but you didn't want to come to work because of something that was going on. And pretty much everybody said yes. And typical cop humor, many of them asked me if this was this week that I was interviewing them. And I said, no, let's do your whole career. And they said, absolutely. And, and plus 90% said, absolutely. Uh, there's been days that I didn't want to come to work. And I asked them why. And it was interesting to sit across from a thousand people and over 90% easy always mentioned a person in supervision and management that was the sergeant from hell or the lieutenant who was an idiot. It was never operational stress. Uh, there was a little mention about work hours and low pay and things like that. But it was clearly the elephant in the room was the lack of leadership and not just lack of leadership, but interference, uh, micromanaging people. It's interesting, the top two complaints we received over the years, and I continue to hear this, is the top two complaints against law enforcement managers is that they will not deal with issues. They don't make decisions. They, they don't tie up the loose ends. They don't address problems. That was the first one. And the number two one was um, they don't communicate with everybody. They don't, no one knows what's going on. Uh, the only time that managers communicate with people uh, is if there's a problem. So when, they're, when the employee or supervisor is being yelled at, or if, hey, will you do me a favor? Or the third one is, this is my buddy that I used to work narcotics with. The general population of law enforcement personnel, no one talks to them. Uh, and everybody knows communication is important. So the point is, I, I think, and this is what's stunning about law enforcement, they will do their job in spite of ineffective managers, which if you think about it, make ineffective managers look good. So, and all of the people listening to this have worked for an idiot. And what you did is you continued to do your job. In fact, you probably were more, co more cohesive as a group to do that 
because you knew you weren't going to get support from above you, but you made the manager look good. And, and so in, in a way, it's a kind of double-edged sword. We don't expect leadership anymore, and we're reinforcing the lack of leadership that, um, and most people will estimate. And I've asked this question for over 20 years. I said, what percentage of managers are leaders? And the, the most common specific number I've heard is 10%. Why do people pick 10%? Because all they, they intuitively understand that most of their managers don't lead them. And again, even though they do their job, in spite of an ineffective sergeant or ineffective captain, it puts stress and uh, drama on the, the job when these managers are causing trouble. And that's, and especially given the demands on the operational environment today, we need to be able to come back to some place that's safe and not have some lieutenant or captain, you know, causing us to be discouraged. Um, and that was, again, the difference between what I saw with the law enforcement community and the, and the military. The, they have a much higher rate, the, the military does, of leadership generally uh, than the operational law enforcement. And I guess that's why I have such a passion for this, because the, the problem hasn't changed that much. The complaints that all of us had in 1972 have not gone away you know, all these years later. And I'm getting ready to come up on the 50th anniversary of when I first uh, put on a uniform. Wow. You know, you bring a lot of good points up. Um, and as you're talking, I can tell you right now, it's uh, I think I've been pretty lucky throughout my career to have good managers and not just making a plug in case my managers are listening. But um, <laughs> I have seen incidents that, you know, could have been done better. And every time we do a debrief, whether it's after a SWAT incident, uh, a critical incident, a patrol, but mainly SWAT, because you tend to have in that culture, people speak up. Right. And we always say, well, what could have been done better? And you hit on communication and communication is always the biggest one. You know, they they mentioned, hey, that wouldn't have happened if we would have communicated better on that or if we would have had the commander's intent or the end state defined earlier on, we could have done better. Um, another one is, as you're talking is like uh, leadership and management. You're talking a lot of things come up. And one thing hit me a while ago. It's uh, if you're running an incident, never let your troops come back to an empty command post, you know, be the first one there, the last one to leave. And that's, that's, uh, that's something that came to mind as well, but also decisiveness, you know, and you, you mentioned, I think in some of your former ones are in your book. Uh, I think I've attended your, your KO conference, the seminar we had at our, our department, but also um, an SLP, you mentioned decisiveness a lot and making decisions and communication and decisiveness seem to be the top topics for that. But I mean, I always giggle too when you talk, I don't know if it's your country accent or, you know, the, uh, the fact that you know our culture more than we know our culture, because as you're speaking, I'm all of a sudden putting faces to the names and it's very entertaining. So thank you for that. Let me, um, let me check something here. You made an interesting comment that most of your managers in the tactical area were, were better. It, it is interesting that I think that's a product of the mission of the officer and the tactical teams. We do not tolerate, and if you really think about it, there's much more of a parallel with the military and a tactical type unit 
than the military and the generalized police officer that works patrol or a detective. And as a result of that, we don't tolerate very often ineffective managers. And plus, I think ineffective managers have still not lost, I'm sorry, uh, the operational tactical uh, managers have not lost their knowledge and passion for the mission. And, and that's why I think most operational people notice a huge difference when they transfer out of a specialized unit, whether it's SWAT or the um, specialized traffic unit. All of those units have better leadership than the average police officer and detective and deputy. And I think that's very important that you have had a better experience and all the people that are listening to this who are in a tactical environment because they have a generally a higher percentage of leaders among the supervisors and managers than the general law enforcement population. All the horror stories that I've heard, I don't think any of them have come out of the specialized units. No, that makes you know, good points. And I think a lot comes down to culture. I know we're doing studies in our organization on highly reliable organizations, um, culture. And, and a lot of that comes into whether or not we're empowering our people and giving them a safe environment to speak up and to, and have that. And, you know, with the type A personalities and, and SWAT teams and canine units and these specialized assignments, they're not afraid to speak their minds. Um, they speak up and sometimes you know, it's for the betterment of the team in the organization. Other times it may come across as being disrespectful or whatnot, but you're right. And the military embraces that uh, more so in a, you know, respectful manner because you want to get article 15 for telling a commander something, but um, I think it's healthy. And I think that, uh, you know, in the team environment, if we just all of a sudden bury our heads in this hand, this hand and say that, you know, everything's great. Uh, you did a great job on that run. You, don't get outside opinions. It's, you know, it's going to lead to a catastrophe in the future. You know, you, you mentioned something else in the first part of this, this podcast, where you talk about all the external influences that we are dealing with. And we are dealing with a lot right now. We have COVID-19. We have protests going on everywhere. We have uh, everything that's going on in the world. I know that we are doing right now with the, uh, the elections and uh, in this specific time, we're waiting for the results of the election. What, what could you share with the, the leaders in our industry, regardless, regardless of their rank, on what we should be thinking about? And again, knowing that this is not the first time it's ever happened in law enforcement. I'm sure with your experience, I mean, you probably thought the world was coming to an end as well. Um, but what, what can you share with us in regards to that? I think a couple of things that we have to remember is as America has grown, they've always been called to deal with change. The first police departments uh, that were formed in the Northeast were all generally formed to deal with this new group of people called immigrants from other than uh, Great Britain uh, who came into our cities. And uh, before that, law enforcement was very informal with the Watchman program and things like that. And that has always been the case, whether it's been the draft riots uh, during the Civil War. I, the unions, uh, when the unions developed and breaking strikes, law enforcement was always called to deal with that 
and continues to do that. And when I came in in 1972, we had just gone through all the anti-war protests over Vietnam. And most of my senior partners had been in riots. So in a way, it's always deja vu that, and as Solomon said, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. I think what makes the difference now is that, and first off, let me say this, law enforcement will continue to rise to the challenge because of the belief in the mission, and most importantly, because of the camaraderie of the group. And I think law enforcement's uniquely qualified to deal with all this because they have a natural understanding, not a natural, they've been trained to understand evil and that people aren't necessarily good people. Uh, they've seen the worst of human nature. So they're not shocked by people spitting at them and throwing things at them uh, because they don't expect anything out of human nature. Unlike most of the population of this country who's been psychologized very heavily, they don't believe that human nature is good. And so as a result of that, they don't get traumatized because someone disagrees with them. Uh, but I think the other thing is that you basically police a society for the first time in history that has basically not been trained to survive. As adults, they have very few tools. As when I mention tools, I mean skills. And you will meet a 28-year-old that has never had a full-time job that wants to be a professional gamer. They have amazing mental health issues because they've had no training in, in life. Uh, life is a tactical issue and they have had very little parenting. They've had very few friends like uh, most of history you've had. You played outside, you worked on a farm, you were relationally involved, and now you have people who are basically loners. Uh, all of their friends are second-handed on the internet. And so they show up as adults thinking they're the greatest people in the world. And I think it is interesting that 90% of Americans rate themselves above average, which is a statistical improbability. And in the name of self-esteem, which is another word for pride, they have such amazing expectations of life that basically they show up with no tools in their toolbox. And life is very hard when you don't have skills. And as a result of that, they go to fight and flight and fight. They're angry, frustrated for the first time in history. We've always had predatory people, but for the first time in history, we have people who will come across the counter and beat the fool out of a pizza manager because he got the ingredients wrong. People are so frustrated because their expectations are so high. And every day, and as I tell people this, you deal with people who have never been told life is hard, who have never been told no. And so in a way, and this is the word picture I use, they're kings and queens. They think the world revolves around them. They've never been told no. They were never disciplined that much as children. Um, they got pretty much wherever they wanted to. And as a result of that, it's frustrating for them that every day they basically have to deal with treasonous acts against them. People don't think they are the greatest people in the world. And it was interesting, I, I use this illustration, I saw the movie Midway, and World War II was called the greatest generation in history, but why were they the greatest generation in history? Because they were trained in the depression. They knew life was hard, they had strong relationships, they had strong communities, they knew that you don't have money to buy anything you want to, that life is not always perfect. 
And as a result of that, they were trained in a way in an academy of years of poverty and not many people having jobs. And as a result of that, they were taught real life. And when World War II came, they rose to the occasion and did probably the most amazing thing that we've seen in this country's history. But those are not the same people we have today. And, and why I mention this is law enforcement, after all the political rhetoric, they're the ones that have to show up when somebody is mentally disturbed and, and is threatening their family with a knife. And we've, we're 250% greater than the number two country in the air of mental health issues. Uh, people are depressed and they're angry and we have more of that stuff than almost any other country in the world. And, and as a result of that, the way I tell people, basically in law enforcement, you're really almost a mental health person that having to deal with people in the mental, that are mentally disturbed, you're dealing with a bunch of spoiled brats in a way. It's like uh, watching some bunch of millionaire kids who are 28 going on 12 and their expectations are incredible. And I, in a way I feel bad for the American culture because they're so depressed and stressed out and angry and law enforcement, when it's all said and done, no one else is going to show up and they have to show up and deal with this. Now, you, you taught in Russia, is that correct? Well, yeah, that, actually, the Moscow police came here. Yeah, for they, they came here. All the Moscow police command college, they came to America. I was one of the leadership instructors for that. Yeah. Now, you told a story. I, <laughs> I have to ask you to share this story because it, uh, it went over really well with my agency in particular in regards to their perspective and their viewpoints on the Americans. And I think you mentioned something about going postal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was, you know, because they, you know, and these, this is a very authoritarian country. And it was interesting. And I want to make a point that it was one of the best educations I ever had because I asked them to describe the best leader. And even though they grew up in this Marxist society, very tough people, when I asked them what a great leader, if they had ever worked for a leader and to describe the leader that made coming to work safe, you knew you could do your job. It was interesting. They listed the same things that the American police did. So leadership's a universal concept that we all understand it. We know what it looks like, but it was interesting because uh, uh, they don't have, or at least at that point, don't have a lot of spontaneous violence. And as I was doing this presentation, I said, we have people, you know, who we had road rage and which is interesting because you never see that in third world countries. They're the worst drivers I've ever seen, but they're not angry. But I, <laughs> uh, that we have people that go postal and you got to remember, this is being translated from English into Russian and the translators stopped talking and, and everybody's looking at him like, why are you not talking? Um, and so he looked at me and he had a quizzical look on his face. He said, Mr. Enter, I, I do not know what postal means. And I said, well, postal means when your postal employees shoot people. And he had this look of shock in his face. He said, your postal people shoot people? And I said, yeah. And he turned around and translated that. If you could have seen the shocked faces on everybody in the room. And, and I started laughing because even though, again, this is a very totalitarian country, they are not used to people who can't handle life and go crazy. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it's not just postal, it's people, you know, we have people show up to school to shoot people. And we have, uh, again, spontaneous violence over a parking place. That's because of the level yeah. of trouble. 
that that now I'm sure the postal people listening to this don't appreciate. It, but the point was, this is there. They were totally unfamiliar with the spontaneous, angry American culture. I actually did a um, speech in Scotland, and I will always remember this. I was doing a thing on violent crime, and two detectives from a Scottish police agency came up to me, and it was very clear they were stressed out. And they were telling me about a robbery, homicide, where a guy walked in, shot a waiter, and stole money, and and got away. And and it was very I couldn't I couldn't comprehend why they were so upset about this. I said, well, maybe one of them knows the waiter or something. So I said, why is this so upsetting to you? And he said, we haven't had a homicide in our city in 14 years. I said, what? You haven't had a homicide in 14 years? He said, no, we don't, we don't have things like that here. And as a humorous aside, he looked at me with, I mean, like a guy, they were desperate. They said, do you have any idea how we might be able to find out who this is? And I literally looked at him and said, you need to find out if an American's moved in your city in the last two weeks. That's probably going to be your suspect. Well, they started laughing and I started laughing. Isn't that sad that in many countries, violence, other than drunk people beating up each other, soccer hooligans, is kind of the violence in many parts of Europe. But the point is, they don't have, other than maybe terrorism, they don't have people that just walk in a school or walk in a workplace and just kill people. And that's that's the unfortunate side, but that's why we have job security here in the United States. And it doesn't seem like it's getting getting any better anytime soon. And it's like uh, just having a conversation with my kid the other day, and it's like, he says, hey, is it possible that I can get drafted if we go to war? And I go, yeah, it's possible. And the mind, he was taken back. And I started to think if we had to do a draft, like you mentioned in World War II, what would that look like in today's society? How many people would the U.S. government have to lock up because they would refuse to go to war? Um, And we'd be in trouble, I think. But let me say this this in a way counter, but the men and women who were forced to join, who didn't want to, would end up being different men and women when they came out in a very positive nature. The, and it's interesting, right? Um, when I was in high school, it was normal for a, the bad guys in my high school, the judge would tell them either join the military or go to jail. The vast majority, I would say 90% of them that were forced to go in the military, I got to see them later. They were totally different people, very responsible. Yeah. Many of them had gone to college and got their degrees with the GI Bills. GI Bill, they had management jobs and corporations, and they were going to end up in prison if they had not been, think about this, trained, much like the World War II generation, in a collective group of men and women with the same mission. They became not just individuals, well, it's all about me. They saw something bigger than themselves, and they had very strong brothers and sisters that they had never had maybe when they were growing up. And that's why I'm saying the military still does an amazing job at transforming people, especially today, since uh, most people come from a culture where they don't have friends and relationships. Uh, And to go into the military like that and 
see that this is not about you, that this is about a bigger thing than you. And for the first time in your life, possibly, you have real men and women around you who not only care for you, but would risk their lives for you. And people are impacted. Yeah. Same thing we're seeing in law enforcement when they come into law enforcement. And I think a lot of these guys too, I mean, looking at, I have your book sitting in front of me and looking at the book, those people who don't have that life experience that come into law enforcement are needing good leaders and managers to get them to where they need to be. They get them to be, you know, mm -hmm. what they would say call a strike, a strike, hold them accountable. And, but the, the fact that I think that some of the things I've taken away was that not all managers and not all leaders know what they're doing. And they may, like, for instance, they may have been a great cop, um, great SWAT cop, narc, uh, traffic officer, and they get put in that position, and then it's a different ball game. And then Absolutely. those people need to lead lead those people. But one of the things is, that, can you touch real quick on the three types of managers that you talk about in your book, so right. that we can kind of have some awareness with that, and right. you know, so we're and, not self deceived. And and one of the things I want to want the people to listen to this, and I, you know, I'll be seventy uh, next month, and I don't know how much longer I'm. Uh, going to be doing this, but I, I, I want to challenge the people that are listening to this that really have some resentment towards some of the men and women who manage them, that basically most managers are not bad people. They were just never equipped to lead because they were raised by ineffective managers who taught them what not to do, but failed to teach them what to do instead. If most managers are failing, then the stronger instructor group, so to speak, is ineffective managers. And they've not been given the tools to do this. And even though as operational law enforcement people, they were highly trained through the academy, through FTOs, and continually trained by good men and women around them operationally overall, that when they're promoted after all this training and good peers and, and, a, and a, a mission they believed in, they're promoted, and in an agency that requires six months of training, they, these same agencies will promote somebody and basically call them in and say, tomorrow night, show up at the Southside Precinct and report to the lieutenant, you're now a sergeant. And yeah. so a highly skilled operational person with lots of experience and lots of training and lots of positive peer uh, support shows up. All of those things are missing and they go to fight and flight, which brings to the three kinds of managers that we generally see. About 10% are leaders. They are very effective in leading with uh, instead of over people. Uh, they haven't forgotten their operational roots. The, the classic description of leadership never asks you to do anything they wouldn't do themselves. Care for their people on and on and on. That's about 10%. Um, maybe a little bit. I think it is higher in the opera, uh, in the tactical and specialized units. But then the other side of the spectrum, if you remember the bell-shaped curve, on the other end of the spectrum are the 10% who are just bad managers, and they're purposely bad. They're mean. They, I don't think it's, I've revamped from the, what I said in the book in 2006. I don't think it's as high as 10%. I think it's very low. Because, again, they're just bad people, and, and we all know that. We've had bad employees, problem employees, that are always a few percentage of people who create most of the trouble. But the middle group is the 
and this is what I, I really was inferring in the previous couple of statements, the middle group is the 80 to, I think, close to 90% of managers who are not equipped for the job. And I don't, they're, they're just ineffective because they've been, they're unskilled. They have been thrown into the position in a profession that has a weak, very weak leadership legacy. We have an amazing operational legacy that cops a hundred years ago were doing their job basically fairly well. And they've trained the cops that came to them. And we've seen that generationally, but law enforcement's never had a strong leadership culture like the military. And so as a result of that, these are good men and women who are thrown into a position with no tools, no peer support, no mentors, and they go to fight and flight. And that's the natural response to fear. They're either angry all the time and frustrated and take it out on people, or most, uh, most of these managers are in flight behavior. And that's why they're doing those top two complaints against law enforcement managers, which is they won't make a decision they won't deal with issues. They won't deal with the problem employed. They would have never tolerated a citizen going 30 miles over the speed limit, but they will not address the problem employee in the agency because they're afraid of getting in trouble and the captain's going to be mad at them and they're going to not have a good chance to make lieutenant. They're totally paralyzed by fear. And as a result of that, they're good men and women who've now retreated into fight and flight behavior. I'm learning and my every day is a leadership lesson for me. Um, mm -hmm. And I learned, you know, that uh, this job is not that easy. Um, there was a, a class that we attended with the strategic leadership program by a former sheriff of Walla Walla County. His name is John Turner. And he said, hey, listen, this leadership thing is it's work. You know, and the one thing you should always do is always look for an opportunity to say yes. It's easy to say no. Will look for that opportunity to say yes. And you bring up decision-making. Um, sometimes that you make a decision, you're going to have to know or do the, the, the work to justify why you're making that decision. So, mm -hmm. um, I mean, a lot of good things are brought up with that. And uh, the manager aspect of it, I think you shared a story one time at one of our classes with one of the people you talk about in your book was actually an attendee of your class. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, this was a cap who was probably uh, what I perceived and almost everybody in the agency perceived as the worst manager. Um, and he came to my class and I was shocked when he was in the class. But what interested me was as I kept doing my class, he agreed with all the leadership principles. And he actually came up later and told me he was proud of me and all that. And I went, gosh, this is not the guy I knew. And then about six months later, he came to another class and when he came up, I decided I needed to speak truth to him. And when he came up and said, I'm glad I could come again to another class you were doing. I really enjoyed the last one. And I looked him dead in the eye and I said, Lewis, you were the worst manager I ever worked for. Everybody hated working for you. And obviously he was stunned, but I also noticed he was very sad. And, and I asked him a question. I said, why did you hate us so much? Lewis, he said, I never hated you. I didn't hate any of the guys. He said, but when I came to the agency, we only had like 30 people. And when you came to the agency, we had like 300. He said, I went from sergeant to captain 
in just the span of a few years. I was never prepared for this. He said, I was so afraid that I decided the only way I could survive was to intimidate you, screw with all of you, so that you would leave me alone. You would uh, flee from me. So you would not see the absolute terror and stress I was in every day. I drove you away. It was wrong, but I had no idea what to do. And, and so I said, so basically you were fearful and instead of fight, you went to flight. But in a way, it sounded like it was fight. And he goes, yeah, that's what happened. And he looked at me. He said, will you forgive me? Yeah. And at that explanation, the worst manager I had thought I worked for, I looked at him and I said, absolutely, Lewis, I absolutely forgive me. And it hit me that he was a good man who had been put in a position without any training, modeling, or support. And it was interesting later that when he passed away, I talked to a couple of guys I worked with, and he said he was a, you know, he's so mean and all that. I said he was a good man that was thrown in a position for which he was not prepared. Yep. And, and I think we need to remember that is, you know, we look around us and we also need to see if we're doing the same thing. Right. Uh, we're and, and decisions. If we don't want to deal with a problem employee, if we're too busy to communicate, we are not leading. And I don't think most people recognize that. People ask me, why do you think most law enforcement managers fail? I said, it's because they don't know they're failing. Jack, we recently talked about the, uh, you know, the three types of managers You've given great examples such as, uh, you know, what managers in the past did that failed. Um, and sometimes we may still have the, uh, those managers in the workplace today. And I agree with you that it is less than 10%. I think that too, in, a, in just a conversation I had with some officers this morning is that uh, there are managers that, you know, are starting to retire or move on that are still under the way that they were brought up. And I know I was still under that when I first became a sergeant. Um, and you know, ultimately over time you start having paradigm shifts and you take a look at yourself and your style and see if it's working and, um, you're constantly growing. And I think that's great, but how can we turn that around? What do you, what would you tell our listeners and some recommendations on, all right, here's the problem. Here's what law enforcement had in the past. Here's what we are currently facing. And this is what we should do. Um, that brings us to, I had an interesting call. Uh, gosh, it's now 15 years ago or so. I, I've, I'm getting sold now. The years all collide together. But I was called by the Honolulu Police Department, and uh, their commissioner, police commissioner, had heard me speak in California and asked me if I would help him uh, basically by he was getting ready to do an oral interview of, I believe it was three captains that were going up for the chief's job. And he basically summarized his belief, which I 100% agreed with, that basically leadership has a lot to do with character. A good person who doesn't take themselves seriously, who is not prideful, who's willing to listen, who knows that they don't know everything and are, and are willing to say, I don't know, so forth and so on. So he said, can you give me some questions that I can ask in the oral interview to help me find the best person. He said, they're all well-educated and experienced and all that, but I need to know who the best person is. So I uh, contacted him later that day and said, ask him these three questions. And I had used these questions before 
in promotional exams. And I said, ask them, uh, what are th your three biggest weaknesses? What's wrong with you? I said, first off, when you ask that question, you'll notice that they are very puzzled and you may get, uh, and that this has been my most common response I've gotten to that question is, please repeat the question because they don't know what their weaknesses are, uh, which shows the power of self-deception. It's interesting, they did a massive study, a friend of mine shared with me just recently that they interviewed people about how do you see yourself and so forth and so on. And then they compared it with the, what other people around them saw that was their reality of their lives. And 91.5% of the people that they tested were in a way delusional about how they came across to people, that they did not see themselves as prideful and impatient and having big toes. But the point is that why that is such a hard question to answer, what's, what's wrong with you? What are your three weaknesses? Is because we don't dwell on, gosh, I need to improve and I don't need to take things personal. We, we point our finger at other people and, and tell them how they should be doing their job. Or if we're not telling them, we're talking about it behind their back or, or chewing it through our mind like he's an idiot and all that when we don't see what we're doing wrong. And, and I think this is one of the most important messages that I'm trying to convey. You cannot trust your opinion of yourself. It is always naturally going to be prideful and self-favoring. And so that's why they have, that's why that first question is important. Do they have the ability to know their own weaknesses? Are they self-aware? Which I think is literally one of the rarest human qualities that we see in human beings today. Uh, the second question is, what are you doing about these weaknesses? And what I was trying to convey there is, are you going to take ownership for the weakness that you listed in the first question? Immediately caused me, if I was an evaluator on promotion boards, to dismiss what you had said in the first question if you started blaming it, uh, your unkind uh, or sarcastic behavior on personality that I'm just honest with people, or you blame it on other people. Well, the reason I say those things is because I'm surrounded by idiots, which is basically saying you don't, you're not taking ownership for your weaknesses. But the third question is really, when you ask me what the solution to ineffective managers is, it is the ability to answer the third question, which also allows you to answer the first two questions. And the third question is, who are three or more people in your life who hold you accountable for these weaknesses? And that was, that's the key is that we are always surrounded by men and women who speak truth to us. You know, Solomon said with a multitude of counselors, there's wisdom, um, that we are just better when we have other people in our lives, particularly a plurality of people who will speak truth to us. And again, that shows the power of why the Marine units and the Army units and the other tactical units are so effective because you're surrounded by men and women who give you that group wisdom, courage, and confidence. And, and I think that's what we've got to surround ourselves. Don't trust yourself. 
Uh, I think that's one of the most important things we understand. Don't trust your yourself you, unless you vet it through other people. There is something amazing about a bunch of men and women who want to do the right thing collectively. And that's what we see in the operational level. And we need to replicate that at the management level if we want to lead. I think yeah, you touched on something there in the last thing, specifically with the Honolulu experiment. And it brings up vulnerability. Vulnerability as a leader. And you know, it's sometimes hard for leaders to say, hey, I was wrong. I apologize. Will you guys forgive me? Or I don't know what I'm doing. I know recently with this pandemic, mad props from my chief when he comes in and goes, hey, and the, you know, the 30 years of doing this, I've never dealt with uh, a pandemic, nor at the same time with riots where they're coming into our city and trying to loot the, the businesses that we have here. I don't know. It, it did something to me. And I go, well, we're an organization and chief, you may not know it, but I'm part of this organization and we're going to come up with a solution together to solve this. But that vulnerability and then, you know, just saying to people, hey, I, I don't know everything, I think is huge in leadership. And, you know, you're bringing up the three people too. And after I first heard this message from you a while ago or read it out of your book, I found my three people and it ended up turning into more than three people. But I made sure it wasn't somebody who I wanted, you know, I was like a buddy of mine or, or and some may be that I just know are very boisterous because they're type A personalities, but also someone that's a subordinate. You know, right. someone who doesn't have, um, you know, the same tenure or the same experience, but I want to hear their viewpoint. Right. Um, I want to hear the viewpoint of uh, some of my civilian staff and say, you know, I want you to hold me accountable too, and, and realize that too, there is a safe environment here and there's no repercussions. There's no, um, you know, vindictiveness from it. I need to know for myself. And then too, I found that when I empowered those people with that decision, it made our relationship stronger. And, uh, and I really appreciated that message for that. And it, again, that's another leadership lesson that I took away from it. I think, um, you know, just again, run through some Solomon quotes, faithful are wounds of a friend, that a true friend is somebody who's going to hurt you rather than that you be stupid. Yep. Uh, another, uh, one of the most famous one is iron sharpens iron. So does one man sharpen another that we, uh, we need that accountability. We need that truth spoken to us. And, uh, and the other one with a multitude of counselors as wisdom. Uh, we are always going to be more effective in the group. And when we speak truth to each other to bring us back to reality. You know, it's interesting. You were talking about vulnerability. The word that I always think of is the word humility. And humility means low-minded. It does not mean a you feel bad about yourself. It means that you see yourself as part of a group. You're, you're not elevating yourself above other people. And the leaders that I've been blessed to know, they see you as an equal, not as a subordinate. And that's what makes them so powerful and approachable. And that's also what makes them so wise and ethical because they, they have people in their lives who don't feel threatened to speak truth to them because we're all stupid. And I think that's one of the most important. We're all going to be stupid. Yes, but sir. We're stupid when we have people around us who call us out on our stupidity. And, yep. uh, and it's a positive fear of man. Solomon talked about a negative fear of man, which was, would snare us, that we were afraid to do the right thing. It's interesting, 
you can reverse that. And if you fear good men and women, you will actually do your job better because you don't want to disappoint them. Again, that's the operational level. We would go down an alley. We would run to the sound of the gun because of our brothers and sisters. And the managers don't have that. They don't right. have in their lives that they have that strong relationship with. And, and we need that. And let's be honest, life is a lot more fun when you're around a bunch of crazy people who, who aren't <laughs> you and, you know, and call you out, you call them out. And all of us have worked in those great units. Managers lose that when they get promoted because now they're surrounded by people who are afraid to say anything. It turns into self-preservation. Absolutely. Know, if you speak on it and yeah, and I see it. I mean, it's going, and then having that shift too, I'll never forget promoting the sergeant. And I mean, I worked narcotics on task force. I worked SWAT. I mean, I was having a great time to promote to sergeant. I'm like, now what do I do? I'm supposed to take myself out of this and then move to Lieutenant after that. And I was like, now what I do And your perception or your viewpoints change every time you make that climb. You know, that's a, a lot of great points here, Jack. And I'm going to, I think we're kind of, as we bring this to a close, I want to throw some sayings that you have mentioned in your class that, I mean, I was, uh, I think it sparked a lot of sidebar conversations and the management that we have here after you spoke here. Um, it caused some of us in the class that you attended in Cato to write these things down. One uh, really hit home was uh, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And the reason why, and especially specifically in a tactical environment is you see ourselves surrounding ourselves with people who are always trying to improve, always trying to be the best, trying to make the organization the best. Um, and, you, and they surround themselves in it, you know, the, whether it's a traffic unit that is out there and they're, they're solving the issues of traffic in the city or a crime impact team or special enforcement detail, a canine detail, and they surround themselves and they're constantly in the, the term is water rises to its level. And that's how we're constantly growing in our profession. But that is a saying that I really appreciated from your class, uh, the show me your friends and I'll show your future. And I tell my kid that as well. I think it's important for that. Another one is uh, we are overworking the best employees, not dealing with problem employees and confusing the rest of the employees with current management practices of law enforcement culture. Would you mind just speaking on that for a minute or two? Yeah, because fear is the primary motivation of most managers because they don't have the skills to do this they will naturally overwork the best employee who will never get them in trouble. So they'll overcommit them. And we use that term go-to person. Uh, when there is a excellent employee, we basically run them into the ground because he or she is safe for us. Uh, an Argentine police official said, we always ride our best horses into the ground. And that is a terrible thing to do. So we overwork them. A police officer actually said, those that try the hardest get screwed the most. As I said, I agree with the concept. <laughs> but then in the problem point, again, we are afraid of getting in trouble. So we overwork the very good and we undercommit and do not confront the very bad because they're going to file a grievance against us because, you know, you, you're, you hurt my inner child and all that. They, the problem employees are, it's interesting, most people don't like the drama. The problem employee loves the drama and he likes screwing with people or she likes messing with people. And so as a result of that, because a problem employee is kryptonite to a supervisor who's afraid of getting in trouble, 
we don't work them at all. We transfer them. We don't document them. Uh, what they're doing wrong, we give them decent evaluations. And the middle group's watching this going, wait a minute, you screw over the best people here and you don't deal with the bad people. And, and it creates a lot of uncertainty. All of us have worked for a hard manager that was fair and, and we will do that. But someone wishy-washy and is making irrational decisions and emotional decisions based on fear, they drive us crazy. So the middle group just is confused and many times demoralized. Uh, even though the mission is still very important to them, when they come in the building, they just see a bunch of confusion and inconsistency, and we hate inconsistency. And, and that's what's happening uh, because they fail to lead people uh, and we neglect the middle group. I don't think we communicate with them because you know it's, it's just, easier to sit behind your office and, and have denial that there's problems out there. And right. they never go away. They're going to come back to bite you. And that's why we get in so much trouble in law enforcement sometimes, because we don't address issues. And, and the same is true with decision-making, because there are some leaders, and like you said, they, they bury their head in their sand. They don't want to do anything. Then those 10% people, they go and then they, they get overworked and then uh, they burn out and it's a true thing. Um, there's always that one person that's like, Hey, go to the gas school. Hey, go to breacher school. Hey, go to this school. And next thing you know, they become kind of like the Jack of all trades and master and none. No mm -hmm. pun intended. We're not sharing that expertise across the whole team or the whole team's not stepping up. And, and that's a reality. And it's something that, you know, as a manager and a leader, we need to address. Um, the last one, is you mentioned it says sit ideas through others, collective wisdom, especially when making a critical decision. Um, or I think that especially making a critical decision is my words, but here's something that it kind of sparked with me. And, and that is sometimes I don't know the answer to a tactical situation. There may be an incident that is similar. For instance, let's talk about Texas Tower and how it is similar to the Vegas incident. We talk about, uh, you know, sometimes history repeats itself in different fashions. But there may be a time when, you know, as an incident commander, when there's so much going on, you know, that an incident commander may be overwhelmed by events. Um, and this collective wisdom comes into play. And I think this is great about Cato and professional tactical organizations is that we have that pool of people, the collective wisdom that we can draw on. Uh, you know, I would not hesitate one second to call somebody from another team in an adjacent neighborhood or someone from Cato um, or yourselves or, you know, people in our profession and run an incident by them before making a critical decision. So that when that decision is made, I know with confidence that I made it with not just my own viewpoint on my own Island, but it was a collective wisdom thing. Do you have anything to say or comment yeah. on that? Or am I getting this all wrong with the, the way I interpreted that? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We don't have to be the smartest person <laughs> if, if we're willing to ask people for help. And, and many times I supervise people who had a lot more experience and expertise in an issue. Why would I think I don't need to ask for them, their advice and, and how to do something? And, and we need, again, we need to go to people on the team that have had uh, more experience in a particular area and use them. And collectively, what you'll see is because the fear is somewhat removed in that collective environment, that, that, that everybody has pretty good ideas. Uh, you mentioned the Las Vegas uh, shooting. It was interesting that three 
operational people on their own went after that shooter and climbed those stairs and went after that guy. He had already committed suicide when they got there. But it was interesting, while everybody else is trying to decide what to do, three people, and I thought the number was interesting, commensurate with what we've been talking about, who didn't even know each other, stood outside the hotel lobby and said, does anybody know what floor this guy's on? And literally went in without a command person telling them to, climbed up those stairs, and with their lives, without hesitation, because they were, as a group, they were going to do their job. They they knew they had to do something. And and it was interesting because I heard the debrief on that. It was an amazing thing that these three people didn't even know each other. But collectively, yeah. they up the stairs. Uh, they also found out people weren't as good a shape as they thought they were. But they, they, without hesitation, went in there because they had two other people with them. And fortunately, he had committed suicide, but unfortunately, uh, the damage had been done. But the point yeah. is, is the power of the group. Jack, we covered a lot during this podcast. You know, uh, I've been to your Cato class, read your book, heard your, heard you at my agency, and now I had the privilege to listen to you during this podcast. You know, every time I listen to you or read your material, I take something away again and again. Um, on behalf of all of Cato membership, all the listeners in this, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your wisdom with us. Um, and just for our listeners, if you are interested in purchasing Jack's book, Challenging the Law Enforcement Organization, Proactive Leadership Strategies, you can go to www.jackenter.com. It's pretty easy. Jackenter.com, spelled just as I would say it, common spelling is some. But you can get that information there. And I know that uh, without a doubt, when preparing people for promotional exams, whatever, there's so much in this book that you can take away from that. If you have the opportunity to hear Jack, if he continues to do this in the future, I highly recommend that you do that. Uh, reach out and see if he would come to your agency and speak as well. Um, it really benefited the culture of our agencies. Jack, again, thank you for uh, spending the time with us as you did at SLP at our conference and now here. Do you have anything in closing? Yeah, I just want to say I appreciate your kind words, but I appreciate what y'all are doing. Uh, this is a hard environment. And not, you know, I hope this isn't unkind, but California is probably the hardest environment to do this in because of some things going on in that state. But y'all will still do what needs to be done. And, and that is what is to me so amazing is that in spite of a lack of support sometimes, which is, I think, still a very small percentage of people that don't support law enforcement. Uh, they continue to go out there and do their job. And everybody that I talk to that is not in law enforcement goes overboard and how much they appreciate the law enforcement people in this country. And, 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 and I think y'all know that when you are, you know, stop to get a bite to eat. A bite to eat and people come up to you. And I think that's what we need to remember. The good men yep. and women of this country, which is the majority, they understand this is a hard job and that you're you're trying the best you can. And I think that's what I want to end with. Uh, I appreciate what y'all are doing and which is why in a way I still do this uh, because I still believe in this um, and the people in it. So Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.